Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to this episode of Tatter. Tatter is largely recorded and edited in the digital media studios at Bates College, access to which is something I am very grateful for. But I do want to say that the views expressed in each episode of Tatter are in no way official views of Bates College. With all that said, here's Tatter. So, you're right-handed, so you're going to want to pick that up and have it on your right side, yep. Yep, and so I'm checking it is in safe mode, so I'm going to pick up the magazine, and I just push that in, and the magazine is seated properly. And when I'm ready to begin, I'm going to pull back this handle to charge it. All the way back, yep. And so I am handling an AR-15, and I have just charged the weapon. My finger is off the trigger for safety's sake. And it is in firing mode. And I'm just getting used to the sight. So that definitely has a bit more recoil, but it's still not painful. It just jerks a bit more than the other one did. And I'm going to put it on safe mode for a second. I'm going to adjust my stance. So one thing that I've... Those were sounds from my first trip to a firing range, where I was, also for the first time, firing an AR-15-style rifle. As you heard me say, the AR-15 had a bit more felt recoil against my shoulder than another rifle that I had just fired, that other rifle being a 22 long rifle. But the 22 long rifle had almost no recoil at all. Yes, the AR-15 had a bit more felt recoil, but a bit more force against my shoulder, but still surprisingly little recoil at all, and I got very comfortable very quickly firing it, which was surprising to me given that I had only fired a firearm once in my life prior to going to the range. My point in going was to learn more about the AR-15, given how much attention it's gotten in the news because of its use in multiple mass shootings. Like a lot of folks, I have opinions about access to the AR-15, but I wanted to learn more about it. I wanted to learn more about the AR-15 so that when I found myself in debates, especially with gun enthusiasts, I would be informed. If you feel similarly, that is, if you have strong opinions but you want to ensure that your opinions are informed, this episode is for you. This episode is titled, A Thinking Debater's Guide to the AR-15. It's largely an interview with John Ismay, a conflict reporter for the New York Times and the New York Times Magazine, who was also a senior crisis advisor to Amnesty International. And before he did those things... I, I, trans- I, was, I started off on a destroyer as a naval officer in 1999, and then after 9-11... Uh, they put out a call saying they needed more people in the special operations community, as it was then called. And so um, I got back in shape, tried out, and uh, was accepted for training. And so I 
started training in the beginning of 2003, and then I got out of the Navy at the very end of 2010. What does an explosive ordnance disposal officer do? Well, um, actually, uniquely, it's it's uh, the only specialty that is uh, where the training is largely the same across uh, four services. The Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines all have EOD techs. So they're basically uh, the military's bomb squad. Um, I could say, if you've, if you've seen the movie The Hurt Locker, yep. uh, that was uh, based off um, a notional EOD team in Iraq. Um, in the Navy, we also uh, had to be divers and be parachutists because we had to be able to deal with uh, mines underwater. That's the whole reason uh, for Navy EOD. So for us, it was, or for me, it was six months of, uh, of diving and salvage training uh, before I started um, six months of ground-based EOD training and then another four months of underwater EOD training and then parachute training and then land warfare skills. So it was about a, it was about a year and a half of training altogether. Uh, we had to be able to diffuse or render safe uh, really anything from a hand grenade to a nuclear weapon. So the inventor of the AR-15 was a uh, person named Eugene Stoner, and he had a patent on uh, the gas operating system, which is basically the, the internals of the, of the weapon. And I believe that expired in 77. Colt had some additional um, intellectual property that expired uh, in the early 80s at the latest. So um, at least by the mid-80s, certainly the late 80s, there were other manufacturers um, making these weapons. In particular, uh, the Belgian firm Fabrique Nationale de Herstad, uh, start, they got a, a big contract with the U.S. Army to make M16 rifles, which are based on the AR-15 platform and Eugene Stoner's uh, gas system. So, um, I mean, today they're you know, any number of dozens of, of companies making making these weapons. Going back to 1994, uh, that was when President Clinton uh, signed uh, into law an assault weapons ban. Can you talk about the impact that that had on both the uh, prevalence of AR-15s um, as well as their popularity? Sure. I think from what our reporting showed was that the 1994 assault weapons ban, as it's commonly you know referred to, really sought to drive up interest and popularity by making it essentially the forbidden fruit. Yep. You're saying this is something you can't have. People want it more. And so what it did was it provided this, this 10-year period of time were certain weapons that either had a combination of external features or internal features were not allowed for sale for the general public. They were generally still available for law enforcement sales and, of course, fully available for, for military sales. When we talk about the term assault weapon, is that the same thing as an assault rifle or are those different things? Those, those are technically different things. It gets a little tricky. To answer your question most directly, an assault rifle is generally defined as a selective fire weapon. Hey folks, this is Michael. 
I'm sorry for the interruption, but this is a good time to go over some terms that are going to come up uh, throughout the episode, including selective fire, which you just heard and I'm going to come back to in a second. But first, I want to define the term semi-automatic because that term is going to be used a lot and I want to make sure that we're clear on it. To explain semi-automatic, I'm going to start actually with a weapon that's not semi-automatic, namely a bolt-action hunting rifle. With that weapon, you pull the trigger once and a single round is discharged, but you can't fire another round until you grasp the bolt, a lever on the side of the weapon, lift it up and pull it back, which ejects the casing of the spent round, and you push the bolt forward again, which picks up the next round from the magazine, you lock the bolt back down, and then, and only then, you're able to fire the next round. With a semi-automatic weapon, it's still one round fired per trigger pull, but the weapon self-loads. The weapon loads the next round into the chamber and ejects the spent shell casing without any action by the operator. So you can repeatedly pull the trigger and repeatedly fire the weapon, with the only action required being that trigger pull. And note, though, with semi-automatic, it's still one round fired per trigger pull. With three-round burst fire, which you're going to hear that term used, a single pull of the trigger results in a burst of fire of three rounds. With fully automatic mode, not semi, but fully automatic, you can simply hold down the trigger and the weapon will continuously fire until you either release the trigger or the supply of ammunition is exhausted. With selective fire, the same weapon can be set to any of those modes. So the same weapon can either be set to fire semi-automatically or in burst mode or fully automatic. With that said, back to John. An assault rifle is generally defined as a selective fire weapon, meaning a weapon that's capable of semi-automatic and full automatic or semi-automatic and three-round burst fire. And it shoots what's it uses what's called a intermediate cartridge, meaning it uses a round of ammunition that is sort of midway between pistol ammunition and traditional hunting rifle ammunition in both size and power. Mm-hmm. So these rounds are meant to be lighter. Um, it's, it's a compromise, really. It's a compromise between traditional hunting rifle-sized cartridges and pistol ammunition. So this was a a class of ammunition that was born out of the Second World War, out of the German army doing studies on the engagements it was fighting, realizing that it needed something to bridge the gap between the rifles that they were firing that could uh, kill somebody at very long range. And traditionally, military rifles and hunting rifles fired approximately the same size ammunition. So these were weapons that could be used for high volume of fire at ranges that militaries typically found themselves shooting at each other, which was a lot closer than the maximum ranges of these rifles. So if the rifle could fire, could kill somebody at 1,000 meters, the, you know, um, an in a, uh, assault rifle with an intermediate cartridge would be optimized for an engagement at, say, two to 300 meters, where combatants typically were shooting at each other. So the, the round itself was optimized for human-on-human combat, the or one of the, the upsides to the to the intermediate round is that it, it weighs so much less. So you can affect for the same burden of weight, you can carry much more ammunition. It's it's a matter of military planners saying we don't need everybody 
in this squad or this fire team or this platoon to be able to engage targets at ranges like 1,000 meters, right? We need them to be able to reliably hit and destroy man-sized targets at 300 meters. And we want to carry more ammunition. So in that way, the intermediate cartridge could make more sense. And then the, the idea of being select fire, so either semi-automatic or some sort of burst or automatic fire, was then therefore a military engagement. Now, assault weapon is a term that, as far as I can tell, comes out of that 1994 law. Yep. And so there is an element within the firearms industry and in uh, the firearms, I should say, the people who are interested in firearms who call this an illegitimate term or a bogus term, um, when in fact people use terms every day that are defined by Congress, you know, that are enshrined in federal law. So I don't see that it's necessarily some sort of illegitimate law, or sorry, a term. What it is is it, it was Congress, as near as I can tell, is Congress's best attempt to describe the civilian version of assault rifles, meaning it's, it still fires an intermediate cartridge. The gas operating system is identical. The internals of the weapon are identical, save for the ability to have selective fire. So these weapons are only uh, capable of semi-automatic fire. How much of a difference does the loss of fully automatic fire make as you transition from the M16 to the AR-15? Uh, do you mean in a in a military setting, or? Well, I guess we can start there. I suppose in a military setting, uh, if if a weapon did not have fully automatic uh, capacity, what would the downsides be in terms of uh, the user and and uh, their objective? I think there are very few, actually. Um, this has been a, a topic of a lot of conversation that I've had with former colleagues of mine or uh, reporter friends who were themselves in the military who deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, who saw combat. And I think you'd find very few former service members who carried an M16 or an M4 that was capable of burst or full automatic fire who also pulled the trigger against another human being who did so using burst or fully automatic fire. I would say in the main, people are trained almost exclusively to use their weapon on semi-automatic mode. The, the idea is you can carry, you can actually deliver a high volume of accurate aimed fire in semi-automatic mode. And this is a business where only hits count so the putting out large volume of fire is not nearly as important as putting those bullets exactly where they need to be when they need to be there. So that is a lot harder to do in fully automatic fire. So I can tell you that myself, um, I'll speak for myself in this instance, I was trained to operate in small units of, say, eight, maybe 12 people. And the only thing we carried were these M4 weapons. We actually had weapons that were even shorter barreled than M4s. They had a totally different name, but they were capable of full automatic fire. And we generally, actually, the only time we ever trained to use them in full auto was um, as we would try to escape contact with the enemy. The idea being that we, if, if it's only eight of us with these shoulder-fired weapons, we don't have 
the same equipment that an Army or Marine Corps uh, infantry squad would carry, you know, large medium machine guns that are designed for full automatic fire exclusively. So, in effect, we would only use this to um, create a large volume of fire to uh, try and keep the enemy's head down as we quite literally ran away. Yeah. So um, that we call these immediate action drills, yep. and that was to immediately get out of the area. So you could actually you could do everything you need to do, you know, ninety five ninety nine percent of the time with a semi automatic weapon because that's the only thing you're going to want to use. So then, am I correct in generalizing from the military context to um, a non military context? Such as the ones where active shooters are are um, uh, roaming uh, in, say, a school setting or, or otherwise. Am I right in assuming that the fact that the AR-15 doesn't allow fully automatic fire doesn't uh, does doesn't limit the attacker's ability to inflict damage? Or am I wrong about that? No, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think you're wrong about that. Um... You know, I've uh, I've sort of wanted to go to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and interview uh, Robert Bales, who's an um, Army sergeant or uh, staff sergeant who murdered a number of Afghan civilians some years ago. Yep. He just walked off his base and slaughtered, uh, I think, a dozen or more Afghan civilians. And um, I wanted to ask him, did you use full auto or semi? And I'm sure he used semi auto. Yeah. I mean, there's I'm sure the weapon that he carried was capable of burst or full automatic fire. But even when we had somebody carry out a massacre um, overseas with a military weapon, I very much doubt that that person used uh, automatic or burst fire. I I would imagine that he used semi-auto. So in effect, that's the same as the, the shooter in Parkland or the shooters in, you know, any number of other cities around the United States where, where these weapons have been used. In your uh, article with uh, Watkins and Gibbons Neff, you wrote that the AR-15 is, quote, a family of rifles rather than uh, a singular entity. Well, yeah, I think it's it's I think it's a valuable uh, point to understand, um, especially because the language is so fraught with uh, potential for error, and it's that that possibility that um, or, or that that problem that leads to a breakdown in dialogue because people will want to point fingers and say you know that doesn't make sense or that that's not true and so what I wanted to get across with this was that AR-15 is a copyrighted name a, a gentleman at at Colt in Connecticut told me that he believes they still have um, a trade, the trademark to the, the the name AR-15, right? But in effect, AR-15 has sort of entered the vernacular the same way that Xerox and Kleenex have. Yeah. Really, AR-15 is is you know become the same kind of term. It's it's still trademarked, but it means any one of a certain class of things, right? So, in this case, even at one point there was a lawsuit between Colt. And uh, a separate company uh, called Bushmaster. Bushmaster is now owned by Remington. But essentially, Bushmaster was making their own version of the AR-15. And Colt 
felt um, that the appearance of it was part of their intellectual property, and a judge ruled against them. So meaning like the silhouette, the shape, the size, because the it was just the internals, you know, this gas operating system that Eugene Stoner had patented that was protected by intellectual property law. So in reality, what you have today are just dozens of different designs that have the same Eugene Stoner internal you know, system and even the same um, or almost identical external features, the same kind of pistol grip, the same kind of buttstock, the same uh, you know, forward heat shield, the magazine well. I mean, just they look nearly identical. There are teeny tiny differences. They could come painted different ways, or the barrel could be a slightly different length, or the buttstock could be a bit different. But generally speaking, we are lumping these together. I think uh, it's fair to do so as AR-15s. Now, there are there, the, the weapon used in the pulse shooting in, uh, I believe, in Orlando mm-hmm. um, was different enough internally that the company that makes it, uh, which I believe was Sig Sauer, argues that it's not an AR-15. So that I, I recall when when that happened, there was there were people who were saying it was an AR-15. Then they um, were sort of you know forced to backtrack and say no, it's this other thing. But in essence, it's near enough to an AR-15 that um, you know it gets lumped together in in that uh, you know with that sort of catch-all term. A lot of handguns today share the most important thing that an AR-15 can do, which is that these are, um, like if, if you, let's take any kind of Glock, because they all, all Glocks are, are this way. They are, they are semi-automatic, self-loading weapons fed by a detachable uh, box magazine. Um, like say with the, the typical handguns that a, a police officer would carry these days. You don't see many cops walking around with with revolvers. So with semi-automatic handguns, they're in the grip of the gun where your hand grabs onto the weapon. Inside there is a a sleeve, basically um, uh, this magazine that you can remove very quickly uh, when it's empty and take another one and, and, uh, and load that and slide that into the grip and then chamber another round. So in effect, really, that's the thing that makes an AR-15, you know, a big part of what makes an AR-15 such a potent weapon is that it, too, is fed by a magazine that can be, that you can carry, you know, several or many of um, that are loaded. And the standard size um, magazine, actually, in the beginning was generally 20 rounds. Like when soldiers started carrying the M16 in Vietnam, the standard magazine was 20 rounds, and that was found to be inadequate. So um, then uh, soldiers were issued 30-round magazines. And so today, in many states, 30 rounds is is a standard size uh, magazine. And that actually gets tripped up in terminology, whether you know people want to talk about high-capacity magazines. And then the question is, well, relative to what, right? But, but the fact is that 30 rounds is a military standard. So maybe military standard is a more useful term to use. And so with the, the handgun and, and, and AR-15, which is your question, they are both magazine-fed. You know, they can be quickly reloaded. They, they, um, the, it, 
the weapon reloads itself after being fired without external human operator actions, and it can continue firing until its uh, supply of ammunition is exhausted. Now, the difference then really becomes simply the size and the power of the round. The, um, a, an AR-15 uh, fires a round that is um, 5.56 millimeters in diameter, whereas a typical law enforcement officer carries a handgun that fires a round that's 9 millimeters in diameter. So that round is you know, obviously quite a bit larger, but it's also quite a bit slower. If you were to stand those rounds up next to each other, the, the height of the cartridge case um, for a 9 millimeter round is generally 19 millimeters in height. But for uh, an AR-15, it's 45 millimeters in height, so you know, more than twice as tall. So the idea is that you're putting quite a lot of power or you know, uh, smokeless powder in that cartridge case. So you're drive- it's a, yes, it's a smaller diameter bullet, but it's traveling much, much faster. So it, it was really sort of based on the, the, you know, the traditional you know, um, F equals MA equation, right, from physics, mm-hmm. like force equals mass times acceleration. So um, that, is, you know, that is part of it. There was a, a, a really interesting piece done in The Atlantic recently that where it was, I believe it was a, um, a radiologist, it was a doctor who, yep, had, yep. who had treated both wounds. And so I would, um, um, I, I think that that doctor is, uh, I, w- I would trust what they have to say. I, it, it, I, uh, I got the sense that that person had seen quite a lot of both kinds of wounds. And, um, and uh, so I, I, would, I would trust their judgment, which was that uh, the AR, the, those rounds from the AR-15 um, almost always are producing um, quite a lot more damage than, uh, you know, to, to human bodies than that from a, a, a handgun. And if I recall correctly, the radiologist in that article was attributing that um, amplification of damage to the greater velocity of the rounds. Well, yeah, I think I think it's the the F equals ma, um, you know, equation at work. So it's um, yeah, it's a, it it is that smaller round, but it's you know traveling at much 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 higher speeds. And then um, also, my understanding is that the damage done can be affected quite a lot on where in the body it impacts, whether it hits bone or whether it hits soft tissue. Um, so you might see somebody who is actually relatively lightly wounded by, by this round or could, in fact, suffer grievous wounds from it. So I think there's a, there's a, 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 degree, a significant degree of variability there depending on what the impact surface is. I've I've heard some some people who are critical of of, of efforts to restrict the AR-15, who have noted that it's uh, it's not that different from a hunting rifle. Uh, that mm-hmm. is, uh, uh, are we, the idea is are we going to start banning thirty out sixes as, as mm-hmm. well? Um, no, you know, honestly, um, I, I think this might be a good opportunity to. to to point out that one of the things that makes the AR-15 or you know the AR-15 family or the M16 or M4 um, so good at its job is that it is not only the you know, the rounds are lighter weight than a 30 out six, and 
and um, for your listeners, the, the 30 out six was is is a very typical round used for hunting. It's I want to say probably the most or one of the most popular uh, deer hunting rounds in America. And in fact, it was used um, by the military in World War II and sorry World War One, World War Two, and the Korean War, and it, even into Vietnam. Um, it, well, I should say in those previous wars, World War One, World War Two, Korea was used in the standard infantry uh, shoulder-fired rifle, and also in uh, medium machine guns. And into Vietnam, it survived in use in uh, medium machine guns. But the thing is, is that that the 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 round is heavier, but also the weapon used to fire it is generally bigger, longer, and heavier too. Whereas an AR-15 is can be shorter and much lighter. Uh, 30-06 also has much higher felt recoil, um, meaning the the you know the kick, if you will, that's felt by your shoulder when you shoot the weapon. And there's also uh, what we call muzzle rise, which is when you fire the weapon, the place where the bullet comes out is called the muzzle, and that will you know that will um, uh, you know sort of rise up into the air, jerk up, whatever you want to call it when you when it's fired, all of that is much, much, much less pronounced than an AR-15. So what you have is something that's easier to carry. It's shorter. You know, it's short, much short, can be much, much shorter in length, weighs much less. There's much less recoil. It's easier to keep aimed at your shoulder, right? It's going to fatigue your arms less to hold this thing up for a long period of time. And you're going to be able to fire much more rounds, and you're not going to beat your shoulder up the way you would with a 30 out six. So that, that actually, I think, or I should say, I think those are some more relevant uh, factors rather than, you know, the people who say, oh, what are we going to, you know, do ban 30 out sixes? Well, there generally aren't 30 out six caliber weapons that are as light and as, you know, easy to fire as AR-15s. They, they just don't exist, not, not to my knowledge. Um, I mean, there were uh, the military did have some uh, rifles. The the Browning automatic rifle or BAR comes to mind that fired 30 out six rounds either in semi-automatic or full automatic mode. But that that's a a beast of a weapon compared to an AR-15. It's it's you know huge and heavy in comparison. And no military is really used anymore. But the the AR-15, like I said, it's it's easy to hold at your shoulder to aim for long periods of time. It carries a lot of ammunition. There's not a lot of felt recoil, and there's not a lot of muzzle rise. So it's actually easy to keep. You know, you can fire and then reacquire your, your sight picture, squeeze off another round, and then bring the sights back on target and just keep doing that. That's that's what the AR-15 is good at. So I'm standing here on a snowy March day uh, with targets each of which we're estimating to be about four feet by four feet square, two side by side. They're at about 50 yards away. And I'm going to try, assuming I still have three rounds of the magazine, I'm yeah. going to try to fire three rounds as quickly as I can, regaining between rounds my aim on the target. So you're still focusing on me? 
Any tips? Um, no, you're doing fine. Okay. Um, you've, you've got good control, so um, feel free to continue until it's till it's out if you'd like. Okay. Until the magazine's empty. Yep. Okay. Um, I could tell. Uh, although I'm focusing on you, I have been looking, and um, you've you've been hitting uh, the target. Uh, there's only a couple that were. Uh, Maybe slightly high, but okay. Yep, yep. You're pretty much on on that target. So okay. I would say that it's probably that's, that's uh, the last one. best suited for recreation. Because if you're talking about protection in the home, um, I don't think that it's there's a reason that a shotgun was considered the best home defense weapon for you know generations. This is a, a weapon that fires a spread of pellets that have a limited range, and you don't have a problem with what's called overpenetration. And an AR-15. I think has an overpenetration problem. It's it can meaning that it's going to go through your target and then what's behind it and then maybe what's behind that. Gotcha. So I shoot at the intruder in my home and it goes through them and then it goes through the drywall and then it goes into the room behind them and possibly hits a member of my family who's in that other in that other room. Um, this is part of why police officers carry, uh, generally speaking, carry hollow point ammunition because. What a hollow point does is that it flattens out very quickly. It expands and it increases its diameter. And so it generally tends to stop in the, in the thing it's shot into. So if, if I fire a hollow point or jacketed hollow point, semi-jacketed hollow point, there's different kinds, into a human target, it has a better chance of not uh, exiting that person. It'll stay there. So if I'm a police officer firing at some... Uh, bad guy in a crowded street and they're bystanders, if, if I weren't fire, firing hollow points, fire firing what's called full metal jacket rounds, it could go straight through that person and then to a bystander behind them, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's the kind of problem I think having an AR-15 in the home would have. In California, where I've gone hunting, uh, those type of weapons, semi-automatic weapons, at least the last time I went, were not um, legal for any uh, uh, general hunting purpose. You had to have a special permit. Um, the, it's called a predation license. Like you are then a predator. You are there as an exterminator to depopulate nuisance animals. And that's a that's a special. It's basically being an exterminator, but like for deer or for other animals, if that makes sense. If you're a general civilian hunter, those, like in California, those weapons uh, would not be allowed to you. They want to make it harder, uh, you know, make it more sporting, if you will, uh, to the animal. It means you have to have more skill um, in employing the weapon. And you may only get one shot with a bolt-action rifle before your, your quarry uh, runs off. If I understand the tenor of your earlier comments, uh, it would seem as if another function um, for which the AR-15 is well-suited is that of an active shooter who is intent upon indiscriminately inflicting damage upon 
a large group of people. Would that also be correct, or am I wrong about that? Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, if if uh, if you wanted to kill a large number of people in a short amount of time, that would be a good weapon to use. One one thing that I often hear said again by um, usually by uh, opponents of uh, gun control legislation is that. Uh, what's needed in active shooter situations um, is an armed civilian who can mm-hmm. uh, effectively neutralize uh, the threat. I wonder if you'd be willing to speculate as to the factors that would generally determine how likely or unlikely that armed civilian would be to effectively respond to the threat. Well, I guess there's um, there's two possible ways I would think people, the people who were saying, who, who advocate for the armed civilian, you know, in a school say, there's sort of two best case scenarios in that I'm guessing that they're looking at. One is that that armed civilian is able to provide enough of a distraction or make, make the shooter feel that they are themselves under threat so that they, they stop doing what they're doing, right? And they, they drop their weapons or run off or, or something. And the second outcome would be that the armed civilian succeeds in hitting and wounding or hitting and killing the, 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 you know, the assailant, right? I would say that the first, the first possible outcome is, would be the more likely of, of, uh, of the two. I can tell you that it takes it takes a lot of training. It takes a lot of time on the range to become competent with a firearm. And I don't mean good. I mean competent. I think that I know that when I was on a destroyer as a, as a surface warfare officer, in the beginning of my time in the Navy, we weren't given that much ammunition to use in training. So basically the best we knew how to do was how to operate the weapons, how to point it, you know, generally in the right direction, but we weren't trained as some kind of SWAT team. You know, when I went to EOD, we could fire thousands of rounds in a day. My ship probably, I I probably fired more ammunition in one day as an EOD tech than my ship did of 300 people did in a year. Wow. And that was to, or certainly my, my team of eight, of eight, of eight guys, um, fired more than my ship did in a year. That that I can tell you. But then we would do that for like seven to ten days straight. You know, out in uh, um, we would. I remember going out to China Lake, um, the high desert in California. There's a Navy base there, and we just we worked through the weekend. We fired all day, every day for ten days straight until we were getting uh, real proficiency with the weapons we've been issued, and so. The thing is, as a civilian, if you want to achieve that level of proficiency, you have to spend a lot of money because ammunition is not cheap. So you have to then be dedicated to doing that. Now, would I trust myself to to handle a weapon and in the same way I did 10 years ago? No, because I know enough to know how much work it took to gain that level of proficiency, right? So it takes <clears throat> a lot of really good instruction, which I had. It takes... Um, a near limitless amount of ammunition, which is, you know, what I used to have access to, you know, to be really, really 
proficient with a, a weapon. And I would say that's different than competency, because competency means I can carry the weapon, I can handle it without accidentally discharging it, without accidentally shooting myself or somebody else. But to be really proficient, which means I can accurately employ that weapon, and I would say here, in a stressful situation, right. that's, that's really complex, that is a completely different type of action. So, in effect, I think the best you could hope for is to employ a weapon in such a way that it would discourage that person from continuing versus um, thinking that you're actually going to hit and kill this person or hit and incapacitate this person and not do the same to anyone else that that um, doesn't deserve it. Yeah, and that, that actually goes to part of my next question, which was that it would seem as if if an armed civilian were to be able to have a high likelihood of deterring uh, or um, injuring or killing uh, an active shooter, they would have to, as you said, have enough recent time on the range to be proficient with the weapon. But also, it would seem to me, and correct me if I'm speculating incorrectly in your view, but it would seem as if they would also have needed recent situational training, live fire training, to allow them to manage their own stress response and be aware of what's beyond the shooter they're aiming at so as to minimize the likelihood of harm to others. Am I wrong about all that? I, I, I don't think you're wrong about that. I think, um, I, I think you're generally, you know, generally speaking, police officers in America have a hard time with that. And, and I think like teachers, police are pulled in a lot of other directions, right? Like I think you're, average police officer does traffic stops, has to testify in court, you know, has to do, you know, respond to uh, 911 calls. Like <clears throat> there's a lot of other things that you need to do as a police officer besides uh, practice weapons proficiency or that kind of engaging that scenario. And clearly the, or I should say evidently from what I understand, that school in Parkland had a, a armed uh, sheriff's deputy, I believe, right? right. So that, that was not a deterrent. You know, would a larger number of covertly armed, you know, teachers or, or faculty or other personnel be a deterrent? I have no idea. But at least that the, the shooter in Parkland was not deterred by having a known armed police officer on site. So it's maybe it's an unprovable hypothetical at this point. But I, 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 I do feel comfortable saying that it would be difficult under the best of circumstances to expect good outcomes if if you we were if if you started arming or expecting there to be people who are not first and foremost weapons handling professionals in those situations did you see uh john oliver's uh segment no, um, no, I didn't. Yeah, well it's i think it's on youtube i'll see if i can find it sent to you. it's about nra tv it's fascinating it's um, his show on HBO last week tonight yeah. with John Oliver. Yeah. Really, really well done. But they, they show women or a woman try, uh, uh, trying to encourage another woman to, to fire. And she calls it something like it, that feeling against her shoulder. It's like a little poof of happiness or something. <laughs> you know, speaking of the recoil. And I just kind of like, I, what, what do you say? <laughs> um, but no, I think that the, um, it's, I think it's really important to, to understand the, you know, that 
there there were these important milestones in the AR-15 becoming or gaining the place in American culture and in um, in the American psyche. You know, it was you know the expiration of intellectual property, uh, which gave rise to more manufacturers that was then somewhat arrested by the assault weapons ban. Um, during the, the, the period from 1994 to 2004, when the ban was in effect, uh, manufacturers started uh, coming up with workarounds. They started, um, you know, you could buy, say, an, a weapon that had an AR-15 operating system, you know, the receiver, but um, it didn't have, instead of having a pistol grip and um, a buttstock, it actually would be, there, the, it would be one unit that would have like a little thumb, they call it a thumb hole. So you could wrap your hand around what was sort of like a pistol grip, but in fact, there was a piece of plastic connecting it to the stock. So technically it wasn't two separate parts and thus would count as two of the five features that um, would make the weapon I- I- illegal to purchase yeah. under under the ban. Um, there, you know, there things like the... Um, uh, the the flash suppressor, uh, a bayonet lug, these things, these were not important. The 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 thing that was important was the operating system. Oh, so that same weapon, say with the the thumb hole stock, um, it would fire say a ten round magazine, right? Well, if you could get your hands on thirty round magazines, it could still accept thirty round magazines right. and fire them, right. right? So, in effect, I think part of what the ban did was it started gearing the industry in order to come up with workarounds. And in fact, um, we're seeing lots of companies uh, still trying to work around, um, or now that they don't have the the assault weapons ban to try and create workarounds for, they're creating workarounds for the National Firearms Act. Um, you know, the definition of a short-barreled rifle. Um, there are people creating um, these things they call SBRs, um, where It'll have a shorter, it'll be essentially an AR-15 operating system, you know, the magazine, everything, firing a semi-automatic. But in order to get around having a shorter barrel than is allowed under the National Firearms Act, they simply don't rifle the barrel, meaning there's no, none of those helical grooves cut into the barrel that impart spin to the bullet that ensure accuracy. Mm-hmm. So these are unrifled barrels, basically like a musket, um, or they have grooves that, that um, run uh, longitudinally, you know, fore to aft along the barrel. So these rounds don't have much range, but you do have a legal short-barreled weapon, right? And there are there are people designing gadgets to get around the state of California's restrictions on um, this. The state of California has uh, laws that uh, regulate both the size of magazine for these types of weapons, but also um, the ability to swap these weapons, the magazines out is limited by um, a magazine release button that requires an external tool in order to operate. And what we saw with the San Bernardino um, shooting was the weapon was California compliant, as it's called, when it was purchased. But then um, the shooter or shooters traveled to another state and uh, bought um, or somehow acquired uh, the standard uh, magazine release button that doesn't require an external tool. And there's any number of videos on YouTube that will show you how with, you know, tools you have at home to swap that out yourself, yeah. right? And so the thing is, is that there are certain efforts to make these things uh, less useful to um, 
somebody bent on mass murder, right? But then there's also no shortage of people trying to come up with with workarounds. Um, there's another device I saw that you you keep the magazine you know locked in a place, but then you reload it by feeding it through the ejection port. It's, they came up with a gadget that allows you to shove ten rounds at a time through the ejection port, and that you can do that very quickly. So in effect, it allows you to rap more, much more rapidly reload the, the California-compliant weapon than you could otherwise, and it's completely legal. So it's, it's a bit of a, a cat-and-mouse game that when you know, California or other states try to come up with laws or, or regulations to, um, to make these things less useful to a mass shooter, there are um, no shortage of entrepreneurs who are trying to come up with ways to essentially subvert those regulations in a way that's completely legal. And the beat goes on. It does. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank John Ismay for taking the time to talk with me. And I also want to thank his New York Times colleague and former student of mine, Naraj Chakshi, for introducing me to John. I want to thank Evan Sear for taking me out to the firing range. And finally, I want to thank Colin Kelly for, as always, providing consultation on technical issues. If you do not already like the Facebook page for Tatter, please visit www.facebook.com slash tatter.rags. You can help stroke my ego by liking the page, but more importantly, you can stay abreast of future releases of future episodes of Tatter. For now, thanks for listening, and be well.